Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intercasso. If you're listening for the first time, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give The Tome Show a baller rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been listening to The Tome Show and paying nothing for it, but you want to help support, it takes less than a minute of your time, go give us a great rating on iTunes. In fact, I've started doing shout-outs to listeners who give us a great rating on the air. I'll read at least one new five-star review verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. I want to let our international listeners know we haven't forgotten about you. I've been trying to get the UK to rate and review the show for the last two weeks, but no one has. Maybe no one in the UK is listening? Are you out there? Please. So here's what I have to say. If you live somewhere other than the United States and you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, tweet at me and let me know, and I will make sure I read your review on air. I'm at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O on Twitter. So we're going back to reviews from the U.S. of A. this week. Here are the words of Dr. T. James from a review entitled Great Show. I've been listening to this show for a long time, and it's had its ups and downs like all shows, but it's always remained on the top of my list as the go-to show for D&D no matter the edition. I enjoy it, and it will remain as my top pick. Well, thank you so much, Dr. T. James. Your last name is also a stellar first name. Everyone out there, be like the good doctor. Leave us a review, get a shout-out. Please use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, you click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then you shop as you normally would. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. My pick from Noble Knight for this episode is the One Ring RPG from Cubicle 7. This is the best Middle-Earth RPG so far, according to many informed sources, as you will hear later on this podcast. And these are the same people who are making the Middle-Earth campaign setting for 5th edition. Also, more on that later in the podcast. You can get the One Ring Revised Edition for more than $10 off the asking price from our favorite brick-and-mortar online store. Get it now at noblenight.com. Let's hear a quick word from them. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers. Use a Noble Knight. To sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. It's trying to sound creepy, though. All right, today we are talking about Middle-Earth in Dungeons and & Dragons, and then we have an interview with Jason Nelson of Legendary Games and Paris Crenshaw about their Kickstarter for Trail of the Apprentice, which is an adventure series that introduces beginners and kids to tabletop RPGs. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Who is your favorite character from the Tolkienverse? Rudy Basso, welcome back to the roundtable. How are you doing? Who's your favorite character from the Tolkienverse? 
Hey, I'm Swell. Uh, I hate to give this answer. It feels like a cop-out, but I just love Aragorn. I think he's so cool. He is the Ranger. The Ranger class in Dungeons & Dragons is 100% thanks to Aragorn. So for that, he is definitely my favorite character. Or Strider. Strider. (laughs) I agree. I agree. So that is a great pick. And then, uh, you know, we're talking about Tolkien. So we brought in some big guns. Not only do we have the D&D V&G podcast, we have both hosts from the Appendix N podcast as well. This is a massive Tome Show crossover going right over here. Jeffrey Wynn, welcome to the roundtable. It is a pleasure to have you here. Oh, I, I, I feel the pressure. <laughs> there is absolutely no pressure other than this question. Who is your favorite character from the Tolkienverse? Oh, it has to be Gandalf. Has to be Gandalf. He's he's such an inspirational character. People just just feel feel hope when you when you mention his 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 name. He's the he is the I- iconic wizard. And you know, like I, I feel like our world could could you use a Gandalf. I mean, he's a he's a tireless crusader for for good. He's he's not afraid to. Uh, walk up to to uh, powerful people and and tell tell them the truth to their to their face. You know, I, I I kind of imagine like if if Gandalf were in 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 the world today, he'd show up at 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 the at the uh, assembly of the United United Nations, or he'd he'd show up at at, at Congress and uh, he'd uh, he'd uh, drop some truth bombs and and uh, walk away. So uh, yeah, Gandalf. I hear you. I, I sounds to me like what you're saying is Gandalf Bombadil 2016. Gandalf for president, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you prefer the white or the gray flavor Gandalf, or are they all just Gandalf to you? They're, they're all just Gandalf. It's true. It's true. I feel like people make such a distinction sometimes, but it's the same dude still. It's the same person. Jeff Wickstrom is also with us. Jeff, welcome to the roundtable. It's great to have you. <laughs> Happy to be here. Jeff, who's your favorite character from the Tolkienverse? Okay, I'm going to give kind of a hipster answer compared to Aragorn and Gandalf, which are some classics, some uh, you know, some big guns. I'm going to go, though, with Círdan the Shipwright for, for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, he's the original owner of the Elven Ring of Fire. And at the beginning of the Third Age, when uh, Gandalf and Saruman and Radagast and the other two wizards showed up and Saruman was in charge, the first person they met in Middle-earth was Círdan. Círdan looked them over, and then he decided to give Gandalf the Ring of Fire, not Saruman, which pissed Saruman off. And I think just kind of started that whole ball rolling of the uh, the treason (laughs) of Isengard. And number two, he's called Círdan the Shipwright because he invented boats. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty impressive he he saw swans uh floating in the water and he thought hey that's a good idea so he started building giant wooden swans that people could ride around on and it was actually several hundred years of building swan boats before it occurred to him that he could in fact make boats that were not shaped like swans and 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 also jeff he, he is the only elf that tolkien describes having a beard because he is in his third life cycle yeah, I may be misremembering, but I think that you actually see Círdan the Shipwright for a hot half second at the beginning of Peter Jackson's Fellowship, and he is uh, he is shown with a beard. Oh, wow. 
that is uh, that is the kind of deep cut token knowledge that we are going to be giving you today on the roundtable. So we've got some real experts here, which is great because I I think I'm probably like a lot of people. I have read Lord of the Rings. I have read The Hobbit. I have seen uh, all of the the various movies, including your your animated classics and stuff, and I've read them all over and over again. And I think, Rudy, you're probably in the same boat as me, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Much more limited. Well, but, you know, uh, here on the roundtable, we want to get all perspectives, uh, which is why it's great to to have you on here as well, because you represent my own. And then Jeff and Jeff, we know from the Appendix end, you guys have done some some great deep dives. Your two-part Hobbit was amazing. Uh, so I'm excited to have you guys on here, and I'm excited to talk about this, uh, this big announcement we've got from Cubicle 7, uh, who own the rights to make role-playing games for Lord of the Rings. They recently announced that they are going to bring Middle-Earth to D&D, in that because, uh, you know, back in January we had the OGL and the SRD were launched, uh, they have decided that they are going to use the 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons system uh to make a campaign book for the for Middle Earth uh which is amazing and wonderful and uh and I think is going to do gangbusters let's a lot of people all a uh, Twitter about this on social media, no pun intended. But I want to know, what do you guys think? We've got all sorts of levels of Tolkien knowledge from basic geek uh, to, you know, supreme Tolkien readers here. So uh, let's go around the table and let's talk uh, first, just sort of in general, where your excitement level is for this basic announcement. We don't really have a lot of information other than Cubicle 7 is making a D&D Middle-Earth campaign setting. Uh, Rudy Basso, let's start with you. Where's your excitement level? Uh, lukewarm, to be honest. I I don't know that Middle-Earth particularly translates to the you know, rock'em sock'em, combat-heavy Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition that we have here. Uh, I, I feel like in any D&D setting, you can throw a rock and you'll hit a bunch of adventurers, whereas in Middle-Earth, they're a bit more rare to come by, there aren't as many people seeking out their glory or, or fortune on the road, and that's the ultimate thing for me, is I don't know if it works there, and I, I think we're going to talk more about this, but um, yeah, I, I don't know that whatever they do end up releasing is going to be anything like what we have played with with fifth edition with the PHP. So I'm really curious as to what they'll do. Yeah, and I we are definitely going to get into that kind of what changes would we want to see made. You know, I think we're we're definitely going to talk about to the game to make it sort of fit within Middle Earth. There might have to be a lot of rules that change to match the the tone of this Lord of the Rings setting. Uh, so I will be interested to see where things go from there. Uh, Jeff. When uh, are you excited? Where is your excitement level for the Lord of the Rings Middle Earth campaign setting in with D and uh, I am cautiously optimistic. Um, Middle Earth is is one of my absolute favorite uh, all time settings. I I definitely believe that there are there are difficulties in doing a role playing game in Middle Earth, but I think that there's Lots of opportunities as well. Um, there, there have been several Lord of the Rings role-playing games so far, and, and we can go over all of them uh, if you if you like. Um, 
and Cubicle Seven is actually already making one called the called the the One Ring role playing game. So they they definitely understand the source material. To my knowledge, I don't think Cubicle Seven has done any any Dungeons and Dragons style role playing games. They tend to do more uh, narrative, story driven, um, in investigation style games. So uh, we will we will see. Yeah, yeah, we will definitely see what is going to come out of this. Uh, cautiously optimistic, I think, is a is a great place to be. You know, before we've seen anything, it is kind of hard to to tell. I think the idea of Middle Earth D and D is kind of like woo, but then without knowing what else we're getting, uh, it it is hard to say. I definitely want to talk about the history of Cubicle Seven, um, and uh, we're gonna get to that in one second. But first, I just want to ask Jeff Wickstrom. Where is your excitement level for Middle Earth and D&D? I'm not so much cautiously optimistic as I am just cautious. Uh, <laughs> there have been a lot of there've been a lot of bites at the the Middle Earth apple, mm-hmm. different people trying to make different versions of a Lord of the Rings RPG and some of them have been more successful than others and I don't know that D&D is a particularly good fit, although the uh, the One Ring game Cubicle 7 has already done d- gets closer than a lot, uh, than a lot of these games, to, to the spirit of Middle-Earth, I think. Well, let's talk about that history, then, of role-playing games. Jeff Wynn, why don't you fill us in? Uh, how many times have people tried to, to make Middle-Earth? What is the storied history of uh, Lord of the Rings and RPGs? Uh, well, the, the first attempt uh, began in 1984 when a company called Iron Crown Enterprises published the now legendary Middle-Earth role-playing game, which is just abbreviated MERP most of the time. Uh, the first edition came out in 1984. The second edition was in 93. They published something called the Lord of the Rings Adventure Game in 91, which I believe was just a simplified version of the rules. And they ultimately lost the license in 1999. Um, Merp used uh, ICE's Rollmaster system, which was basically uh, an advanced, advanced version of Dungeons and Dragons. I believe it was a percentile system. There were there were lots of charts. Mm. Um, uh, Merp was great because they had these very detailed uh, source books. That that took uh, tiny parts of Middle Earth and really blew them up and and got into super fine uh, detail, uh, but the details were things like weather, and flora and fauna and <laughs> <laughs> you know often oftentimes rather rather dry things like that. But they were also not afraid to expand upon the world, mm-hmm. uh, put things in that that Tolkien left out, which is a one thing I think you need to do if you're going to make a Middle Earth role-playing game. Uh, unfortunately, it, it was basically Dungeons and Dragons in Middle Earth. You you had wizards who flew around and threw fireballs. You could you could find uh, magic swords everywhere. So it, it didn't really feel like Middle Earth uh, if if you were if you were playing it. The next attempt at, at a role-playing game was uh, from Decipher in 2002, uh, and Decipher was was a great uh, company for for card games. They they made a a, a Star Wars uh, collectible card game and a Star Trek collectible card game, and they had a Lord of the Rings collectible card game, uh, which which used um, images from 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 the films, and um, 
fans fans of, of of card games i think i think um we're we're big fans of these of these games uh, the lord of the rings role-playing game from decipher was basically also third edition dungeons and, and dragons but they they changed the names of things like uh difficulty classes became target numbers there there weren't really classes though uh, i think you i think you picked like a package that gave you like some careers and and some weapons but yeah, mechanically yeah. most people everyone was really just a fighter <laughs> but you could you could also learn magic if you wanted to i guess that's kind of lord of the ringsy <laughs> Uh, everyone's kind of a fighter, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sounds... Mm-hmm. From, from what I understand, well, it, it used the CODA system, and I, I guess it won an Origins Award. Oh, but yeah. I don't remember it being that interesting of a game to look at. I never played it. Okay, so okay. I can't tell you, tell you, tell you much, much about it. Uh, and most recently, in 2011, Cubicle 7, which is the company that's going to be making uh, the, the D&D conversion for Middle-Earth, in, in 2011, Cubicle 7 began publishing the One Ring role-playing game. Uh, Cubicle 7 is a, is a uh, United Kingdom-based company. They published the Doctor Who role-playing game. Uh, they published some uh, Cthulhu supplements for the, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Uh, and the One Ring role-playing game is, is it, it's a role-playing game designed by an Italian designer. Uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher his name. Francesco Nepitello. <laughs> he's, I believe he's also one of the, of the, the designers that worked on the War of the Ring ro- um, board game that was first put out by Fantasy Flight and is now put out by, by Ares. If you want to play an awesome Lord of the Rings board game, War of the Ring is awesome. The One Ring role-playing game comes in a beautiful slipcase with, with two books, custom dice, Amazing maps. Uh, it is it is a heavily narrative, story driven game. The core rule book you you're, you basic you you play in the Mirkwood area um, shortly after the, the defeat of of Smaug, and it's 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 very narrowly focused, right? You 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 you, you can play men, you can play uh, some other types of men, you can play dwarves or or hobbits or or elves. And um, sessions take place over over the course of of, of years. Uh, it's it's a lot of walking around in the, in the wilderness, and it's 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 very dry. And Jeff Wickstrom, you said you have played the Cubicle Seven role playing game. Uh, yeah, I ran it for a several uh, maybe six months when it first came out. It was it struck me as a game that had a lot of really neat ideas. But some of the rules stuff didn't seem completely uh, completely there. I know that since I played it, they had a revised edition, and I I know that the revised edition has at least addressed all of the all of the problems that I had with the first edition. I haven't played the revised edition, so I don't know if they actually hit the mark. But I do know that they were were actively trying to improve the system. Gotcha. And it's it doesn't sound like it's a full overhaul, kind of like a 3.5 version as opposed to third edition. Yeah, that's the impression that I got. One thing that I wanted to I wanted to point out before we move on oh, from talking about the historical historical Middle Earth uh, role playing game stuff is the uh, the big lawsuit between Iron Crown Enterprises and uh, Tolkien Enterprises and the Tolkien Estate in uh, 1986 oh. the full details of which i'm not completely expert on 
but I do know that Iron Crown got in a lot of trouble for drawing on elements from the Cimmerillion, which were not included in their license. Their license was just for uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Yeah. Also, they had a line of like kind of choose your own adventure type books called Middle Earth Quest, uh, sort of like the the Lone Wolf uh, series of game books. Mm-hmm. And those were a, were a casualty of the same or a related lawsuit because they had, according to the uh, Tolkien Enterprises, they had a, a license to print uh, role-playing game materials, but not books. And Whoa. it got the question of what constitutes a book. So they had a projected line of 13 of these Middle-Earth Quest game books, of which only seven were actually published, uh, one only in uh, Spanish and Portuguese and Italian. No English, no, English, uh, no English translation. Wow. I would, I would question when that lawsuit took place, Jeff, because I, I know that they were using stuff from the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales in both their role-playing games and their card games uh, right up until they lost the license in, in 1999. I mean, uh, Middle-Earth, the Wizards uh, card game, uh, made reference to Alatar and Palando, the, the, the blue wizards who were only ever named in uh, Unfinished Tales. It boggles the mind that they were able to get away with it for, for so long. And, and the fact that um, basically no one can touch any, any of, the, of the posthumous works is, is, is a huge barrier that, that stands between uh, any, any Middle-Earth role-playing game and success. Definitely, definitely. I don't know, like I said, I don't know the full details of the lawsuit. Uh, I know it at least started in 86. I, beyond that, I don't know. So let's talk a little bit about uh, D&D in Middle-Earth. So Cubicle 7 obviously capitalizing on the OGL. I think the announcement did gangbusters. I imagine a lot of people are going to be checking out this book when it comes out. Uh, it seems like it's gotten a lot of press in all the right places. Uh, Jeff, when you were describing some of the uh, the various games, you used the word dry a lot. Um, do you think that a Middle-Earth setting needs to be dry? Well, let me let me be be clear. I don't I don't think that a a Middle Earth role playing game needs to be dry. Right. Um. There's there there's a lot of talk about what constitutes a a faithful adaptation of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. And when when I when I when I was first getting into into Tolkien, I was a super hardcore grognard, um, elitist, purist. <laughs> whatever right, I've, right. I've since come around to the idea that that any middle earth game movie whatever first needs to be fun and interesting and entertaining so yeah middle middle earth compared to a lot of of other settings is is very dry and and lacks a lot of 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 the of the stuff that that other settings have i mean tolkien Tolkien was was not a a gamer nerd. He was, you know, Gary Gygax, Ed Ed Greenwood, all of these people. They 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 lived at a, at a different time. They they spoke a different language, right? Tolkien never never saw an episode of of Star Trek. He he never read uh, uh, Avengers comics. He was he was a a Oxford English professor, and he was he was not creating a world 
for for games, he was just creating a world for 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 himself, right? Mm-hmm. For for purposes that only he really um, understood. So, Middle Earth lacks uh, a lot of magic. It lacks a variety of monsters. Um, it's it's got a a huge map that is is mostly left blank. We only really know about the places that Bilbo and Frodo went to in their ad- adventures. And a lot of the cosmology behind Middle-earth is locked away in books like The Silmarillion and The Unfinished Tales that were published after Tolkien's death. There's, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not um, th- their final forms are what Tolkien really intended. Uh, uh, Christopher Tolkien goes, goes into, into a lot of, the, of, of how Middle-earth came to be in his 12-part History of Middle-earth series that – that you can read through if you really if you really want to, <laughs> um, but but uh, Christopher Tolkien is 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 absolutely adamant upon sitting on on those on those sources and not letting anyone use them for for licensing because he he is the ultimate Tolkien purist. He doesn't want to let anyone uh, sully his his father's uh, works. And it's 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 not about it's not about money. It's it's about he is he is the ultimate Middle Earth nerd, and he doesn't want to let anyone else play in his in his uh, playground. So it's it's very problematic. Sure, sure. And uh, you know when you're thinking about things that maybe aren't necessarily Wizards IP, but aren't necessarily you know within the Middle Earth realm either, uh, it, it does kind of limit you. And what you know, I think you were saying earlier, giant spiders. Big wolves, orcs and goblins, and some dragons, and you know those are those are the main foes of a lot of uh, uh, Tolkien's most popular works. Uh, so I do think it is it is really interesting. What do you think then needs to happen to D and D to uh, for you? What what would you want to see happen to D and D? What do they need to change, kind of about the rules for the the setting to work? And obviously, we could we could list things probably all day, but do you have any general ideas? Well, uh, there's, there's a couple of approaches you could, you could take. Um, you could, you could simply change nothing. Mm-hmm. You could, you could just play Dungeons and Dragons and use Middle Earth, uh, lo- locations and, and concepts in your game. And I think that's, that's a fine I, I, I idea. You can absolutely do that. Um, if you're looking for ideas for, D and D style classes, but with a Middle Earth flavor. Um, I would I would point to the Lord of the Rings online. Um, they they have classes like the minstrel as as the healer. Uh, they have classes like um, I think it's it's the captain, who's who's sort of this this uh, Boromir class who's just very char- charismatic and he's sort of like a paladin, but but not not really. I mean, it, it still has to be Dungeons and, and, and Dragons. If you're going to say we're going to make a Dungeons and Dragons game, but set it in Middle Earth, then, then you still want to do things like go into dungeons, kill monsters, and take take their stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there there has to be monsters to kill, and there has to be stuff to take. <laughs> so that means, right? So, so that that yeah. means you, means you need to be able to. You, you you can't just use orcs and wolves. You, at some point, you're going to need to make up some some new monsters or find a way to make uh, the classic monsters like make just make a more more variety of them. 
uh, and there needs to be stuff there. There, you know, so even though even though Frodo wasn't tripping over magic swords and rings in his in his adventures, it's it's okay to add things like magic swords and rings and you know little glass baubles that 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 do something to to your game, just in in order to give the players something to do. Yeah, I agree completely. I think it still needs to, at its core, be a fun game, right? Otherwise, it's not going to work no matter how true to Tolkien it is. Jeff Wickstrom, what do you think a Middle-Earth campaign setting should look like? And how do you think the D&D rules would need to change to uh, to match that world? So the thing that strikes me about that is uh, after I had been running this uh, The One Ring game for... You know, about half a year or so, I had a sit down with the players, and I was saying that I was, you know, there were X, Y, and Z about the uh, the system, the rules that I didn't really care for. It seemed like we were getting bogged down with stuff. What did what did they think about the game? And one of the players had a complaint that kind of surprised me, which was that he couldn't shake the feeling that what whatever they did did not matter. Uh, they knew he knew that regardless of what the party. Uh, accomplished in another 80 years the war of the ring was going to come in and frodo and aragorn and gandalf would do the actual saving of the universe and the stakes uh you know these more local smaller stakes that he was trying to get invested in he just could not convince himself that it was worthwhile that's uh that's actually really interesting and i feel like that is a problem sometimes like a, you know, like a DC heroic universe role-playing game and, and that sort of thing um, where it's like, yeah, but you're never going to be Batman or Superman in a universe that already has a Batman and a Superman. Um, yeah. You know? Merp tried to, Merp tried to address the problem by setting their, uh, all of their source books were set like what, 400, 600 years prior to the war of the ring, which also gave them a lot of leeway in terms of inventing stuff. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that, you know, it's just another way of looking at the same problem. And the further you get away from the War of the Ring, the further you're getting away from the thing that makes you want to explore Middle Earth. Rudy, I think that's actually an interesting uh, problem to bring up to you because you've played a lot of, or, or a fair amount of, of Star Wars role-playing games. And and so is there that problem in Star Wars role-playing games like, yeah, you know, you can do these things, but you're never going to blow up the Death Star because that's what Luke and Lando Calrissian do. And, you know, um, you're never going to kill Darth Vader. Or is there enough to do in a big universe like that that you found that wasn't really a problem? I think Star Wars is a little different because Star Wars is so, like, they could ignore the Civil War entirely. I've weaved characters from the Expanded Universe novels and from the movies in to just try and give them more of a sense of you're in it, like, you can be involved. In fact, my players decided to ignore Wedge Antilles and refuse his mission. So (laughs) there's definitely more to do. I I definitely think Jeff is onto something in that, like, there's... like it, none of this matters like the <laughs> things are going to happen the rings are going to get thrown into the volcano where i guess you could try and have them tag along with the fellowship but that feels weird or and i know a lot of video games have tried to do stuff like this where there's like oh there's another party um also doing important stuff concurrent to the fellowship it's also very very important and it's like well Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's uh, it's kind of a factor of the the way in which that big map is so blank. 
Uh, with Star Wars, there's this big, complicated universe. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's all these different planets. There's all these different, uh, you know, expanded universe stuff. With Tolkien, there's just the War of the Ring, mm-hmm. and everything is zoomed in so much on that conflict that if you go off into the blank spaces, they're just they're just blank spaces. I think Star Wars is is an excellent. Uh, com- comparison i think i think i think the the reason that we have such an excellent expanded universe to to play around in is is due in no small part to the west end games uh star wars role-playing game which which contributed greatly to the expanded expanded universe i mean i i have to imagine that when they were first starting out you you were doing stuff like stealing the death star plans weaving weaving in and out of the main storyline and this you know, I mean the, the the universe didn't start out huge it expanded slowly with with middle earth the the tolkien estate has basically not allowed anyone to do anything remotely like that with their with their ip and so for you know the the 50 60 years that we've had the lord of the rings it's been just the lord of the rings we we've had just that one story and and no one's been been, been allowed to explore other other avenues so if if you're doing a lord of the rings game in your in your home you should probably start out how the star wars universe did you know just just do do a mission that sort of weaves weaves in and out of the main storyline but then over time you know expand it go off in your in your own own direction find your own village uh, somewhere that's being attacked by some monster not related to sauron and 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 do your your own thing there yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's that's a good point because Star Wars there are there are literal planets you can go and save. <laughs> uh and and no one really <laughs> cares what you're doing. So yeah, I think those blank spots in some cases you need to create your own story and hopefully the role playing game gives you some of the tools to also do that. To, you know, to to say like, okay, so here's this this blank spot over here that's untouched by, you know, uh, dark forces and light forces alike, and there's you know something weird, and maybe you've got to go get a thing, maybe you've got to go destroy a thing, maybe you've got to go protect somebody or or make some sort of negotiation or whatever. But yeah, I think starting with your own story helps make it your own. Uh, that's a that's a really really good point, Rudy. What do you think would have to change about D and D? to match a uh, a middle earth style setting. I know at the beginning you said you're, you know, you sound like you're probably the most tepid of everybody on the panel. Um what do you think would would need to change? I think magic uh is a really big one. Like I know when Jeff was describing you know people being able to fly and stuff, one of the other editions a part of you went, "No, and it's it's just because we have that so much in in Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk that uh, I would love to see a very low magic kind of world where everyone and that's one of the things that's funny you mentioned Lord of the Rings Online but there's a class called like Rune Keeper and he can cast Fireball on stuff and I'm like whoa 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 hold on this does not seem right <laughs> you mean yeah, well Lotro's a Lotro's a it's video game yeah so. <laughs> but I would love to see them just be like all right everybody is basically a fighter and this guy is good at kind of fighting style or whatever I would like to keep it like really low magic 
they might end up taking a trick or two from fourth edition with things like the warlord class oh, looking sure. at uh you know alternatives to the yeah, the magical uh, healing that is so so much at the core of the uh, of the D and D adventuring day. Mm-hmm. What uh, what Lord of the Rings Online does is they they replace hit points with morale points. Um, so, so that that's why the minstrel can be the can be the healer because they're they're replenishing your your morale by singing at at, at you, <laughs> and th- and that kind kind, kind of thing. Um, I think uh, you know. But me- mechanics that sort of play into the the themes of Middle Earth: um, hope versus despair, uh, light versus dark, purity versus uh, corruption. Um, th- those are things that that uh, a Middle Earth role playing game could could explore. Yeah, so more of an expansion on on what's already there, um, as opposed to saying you know lose the warlock class, lose this class, lose that class. It's more saying. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we bring these themes better into the game with rule add-ons, which mm-hmm. I think is cool. And I love that I, what you just said about morale points. I was going to say, you know, one thing about Lord of the Rings is Boromir takes a couple arrows and dies just like a real person. Um, whereas in D&D, you take a couple arrows, you you don't even call the cleric over necessarily. Yeah, lethality. Uh, that's a yeah. great point. Yeah, yeah. So th- that idea of morale points, meaning you know you, your morale is getting lower and that kind of thing, and then you get delivered that final blow when you despair and you've given mm-hmm. up. That makes a lot more sense to me and feels a lot more Lord of the Rings than I've been hit with a sword seven times and I'm still not dead. Jeff, when uh, you had mentioned to me before we started that you wanted to uh, read a couple of quotes. Um, from the Tolkien boys, would you like to do that, man? Okay, let me let me see if, if if I can put this in put these in in context. The first the first is is a letter uh, from J.R.R. Tolkien to uh, Milton Waldman, uh, where where he he makes his his other minds other other hands uh, statement. And this 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 has been used by by Tolkien fans to um, sort sort of uh, uh, justify. Uh, trying to um, expand and and build upon Middle Middle Earth after after Tolkien's death, um, Tolkien says, "Once upon a time, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story. The larger founded on the lesser in, in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the from the vast black cloths." which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. It should possess the tone and quality that I desired, somewhat cool and clear, be redolent of our air, and while possessing the fair, elusive beauty that some call Celtic, it should be high, purged of the, of the gross, and fit for the more adult mind of a land long now steeped in poetry. I would draw upon some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched, the cycles should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands, wielding paint and music and drama. Other Other Hands was the title of the official Middle-Earth role-playing magazine published by ICE uh, from 1993 to 2001, um, two years after they lost the license, uh, uh, no, notably. Uh, and Other Minds is an online magazine that has been published since 2007. You can find them at omzine.org. 
they they haven't updated since May 2015. I I, I noticed, but um, if you if you want to get involved with what's what's current in Middle Earth Earth role playing games, I guess that they would be the ones to check check out. the The other thing I I wanted to read was uh, a quote from Christopher Tolkien. He was interviewed by the French newspaper uh, Le Monde in 20, 2012. Christopher Tolkien has basically been living as a hermit in the north of France uh, for the last 40 years and hasn't really spoken to the media about anything except to release books. As a Tolkien fan, Christopher Tolkien is is a troubling figure because he's he's done so much for the fandom and yet it, he also seems to stand in the way of a lot of things. He 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 says when when he was in, invited to meet Peter Jackson he he declined. He said they eviscerated the book by making it an action movie for young people aged fifteen to twenty five. Then later in in the article he he says Tolkien has become a monster devoured by his own popularity and absorbed into the into the absurdity of our time. The chasm between the beauty and seriousness of the work and what it has become has overwhelmed me. The commercialization has reduced the aesthetic and, ph- and philosophical impact of the creation to nothing. There was only one solution for me to turn my head away. Uh, and <laughs> wow, that's uh, yeah, harsh. It 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 makes me very sad that that Christopher has been has been driven to this that that he is so disconnected from the rest of the world and and from his 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 fans. And I can I can partly understand why because. Uh, when the Lord of the Rings became really popular, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was 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 overwhelmed. I mean, he was a very private, personal family man. All of a sudden, he was getting swamped with with fan mail. Right? People want, wanted to meet him. People wanted to, you know, be his his apprentice or 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 whatever. They were they were treating him like he was some sort of uh, celebrity. And and uh, I mean, the pressure became so much that he was forced to flee basically into 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 exile and. I mean, Christopher re- re- remembers that he he remembers how it how it um, affected his his father and it, it affected him as as well. But I mean, I, I think it, it's also just very sad that that he just doesn't want to engage with with the world and and he views any any and all deviation from uh, the word that his father wrote as some kind of uh, abomination. Right, and I, I think this this is is the ultimate end of grognardism when you when you just take something so seriously that that you're you're unable to see anything else. So yeah, it's 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 just it's just very very sad that that that, that we have this this uh, situation and and we we can't have works based on the Silmarillion or unfinished tales or anything else that that Tolkien wrote. Uh, that was published after after his death, unless unless something something changes with Christopher Tolkien uh, and and the Tolkien estate. Wow, that is uh, you know, I, and I had heard right that the the Tolkien estate was unhappy with Peter Jackson and the movies and everything. Um, but it, uh, to to hear what the actual words are is definitely like whoa. 
and makes you wonder if they would ever be happy with anything other than a very strict adherence uh, with a role-playing game. I'm guessing they're probably not looking at the role-playing game as carefully as they are major Hollywood motion pictures. I'm just wondering if they release this version via the OGL, whether they're going to continue to support the One Ring role-playing game, which I guess it's a little disappointing because it it really does seem like they, they tried to make the mechanics fit the setting and... I'm not sure that that'll happen with the 5e version, and it would be a shame, and I definitely would feel bad for that Italian guy if uh, he made a game (laughs) and then they just decided to throw his game away to to latch on to, to the OGL. Oh, the they, One they, Ring they, is so obviously a labor of love, and the yes, production exactly. values on the books are just so gorgeous. Uh, I wish the rule set were a little bit better, although the, with the revised version, maybe it is. Uh, but I can't imagine that they would they would just abandon that. I know that they have a have had a fairly healthy line of uh, supplements up to this point, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think they. They they recently put out a Rivendell source book and I believe a Rohan source book is planned for sometime in the in the distant future. So they're 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 not giving giving up on it, no. Yeah. It's a game where it actually is a a meaningful achievement to successfully walk across Mirkwood without succumbing to despair. <laughs> which uh which I think is is kind of an achievement in RPGs. That's not something you see very much. If they can adapt some version of the journey rules uh, to 5e, that that would be impressive. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see if if how much do they lift from that game and bring over to 5e or or translate over in some way. Um, you know, I think that the D and D version is probably going to sell better just because it's Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings together. I can't imagine that that doesn't sell very well for or that it won't sell better than the other one. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see once that version launches. Uh, how much longer will they continue to support um, the One Ring, which I mean is also a five-year-old uh, role-playing game at this point? So I hope that they do keep supporting it, since somebody did make a labor of love out of it, uh, and maybe that's the plan, right? Is that hey, if people come for D and D, maybe they'll come check out the, uh-huh. the One Ring rules too. Well, uh, we definitely want to know what uh, people out there think about this. Are you excited? Are you cautiously optimistic? Are you lukewarm? Uh, as Rudy said uh, about uh, Middle Earth coming to Dungeons and Dragons for fifth edition. Uh, certainly time will tell what this is going to be like, but let us know over at facebook.com slash the Tome Show and in the show notes for this episode over at the Tome Show.com. All right, now it's time to roll my interview with Jason Nelson of Legendary Games and Paris Crenshaw about their Kickstarter for Trail of the Apprentice. Okay, everyone, now I am here with Paris Crenshaw and Jason Nelson of Legendary Games. We are talking about Trail of the Apprentice, and we're going to get right into it. Gentlemen, welcome to the roundtable. Hi, James. Thank you. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. So let's jump right into it. Trail of the Apprentice, the Kickstarter is now live. What is Trail of the Apprentice? Trail of the Apprentice is a a new project for, well, it's really all about families and gaming. It's the idea that, you know, I started gaming when I was 10 years old, and a lot of people did, you know, back in my generation. But as we've continued to become more experienced gamers, it's sometimes it's hard to find things that are mm, thematically appropriate for playing with your kids. Now, there have been starter sets and beginner boxes and things for games like D&D and Pathfinder, which 
help, but there's not a lot of content support for that. And so we really wanted to create a project and a product that would be something very cool that you could play that was accessible to all ages, not just for dealing with you know kids and younger gamers, but with anyone who is new to the hobby. You know, ours is a hobby that is healthy, but you know, growth is not you know super fast. And so we want to really help give tools to reach out and branch out and help bring in new gamers with products that you can play with the regular you know RPG rules, regular Pathfinder rules, regular D and D rules, but that you can also play in a, a more easy to grasp format. They can really help bring in those new players and especially for people you know working with their own kids or working with other kids and trying to get them interested in this kind of a hobby you know, get them away from their computer screen give them something a great fun hobby that we all enjoy and love but we really want them to get on board trail of the apprentice is a project that i've been working with paris crenshaw on and it's part of a larger project we call legendary beginnings and it's all about bringing people into the hobby this particular is a five-issue adventure series or adventure path, each one kind of building on the last, so that you could take people beginning with the game and gradually layer on more and more complexity to the point where they are kind of learning the game as they go along with a storyline that is rich and engaging, with terrific art, with characters that can grow with them. And by the time they finish it, they may still be interested in playing that style of game, or they may be ready to branch out into you know full-fledged you know, gaming in D&D and Pathfinder, what have you. Wow, that is awesome. I mean, people who listen to the podcast know that one of my big passions is bringing new players into the hobby because without mm-hmm. people playing the game, you don't have people buying products, supporting the industry, yada, yada, right? Um, this, exactly. This is amazing because not only does it introduce new players to the hobby, but it also allows families to get together. And I know a lot of people who stop playing because, oh man, now I have kids and I don't have the time. And, you know, we're, we're playing a lot more Monopoly or we're playing a lot more Candyland or, or whatever it is. This is a great way to still gather around the table, do something social, introduce new players to the hobby, and if bring old players back into the hobby. So Paris, tell me a little bit about the story. What is the story of Trail of the Apprentice like? Um, it begins with um, uh, a raid uh, on a village, um, and um, the players happen to be there for whatever reason because that's the where player that's where the PCs always are. Um, and um, it starts off as as a result of this raid, something is stolen, um, and the PCs get involved in going after the bandits. Uh, the first adventure is called the Bandits Cave, um, and uh, the they go after these guys and discover um, that there's something more going on um, that. And so this, the search for uh, to recover this uh, lost treasure uh, launches the characters into a quest uh, to find out why this treasure was stolen, um, who really wants it uh, and what they want it for. Um, And along the way they get to experience uh, a little bit of the the setting. Um, You know, I tried to keep it generally setting neutral but at the same time, uh, I wanted to kind of introduce some different elements, some different things that I hadn't seen uh, used as much. Um, one of the things that I, I, I've been, you know, I tell folks is that I, I, this setting should have more of a kind of colonial era feel to it. Oh, fun. Um, it, it, it's fun and it's very different kind of thing from yeah. the traditional you know, medieval Europe. It's kind of the tropes of medievalness, but in that colonial America's kind of style and, and feel to it. So it, it gives them a different 
not only a different flavor, but also one that is in some ways, you know, maybe more accessible or easy to know for people to say, okay, this is this is something that all fits together in a piece. And, and it makes sense because that's a period of history you begin studying when you are a young kid, so mm-hmm. which is great. Right. Well, and and along those same lines, the setting also, um, I tried to do some things that that simplified uh, situations. I mean, we as we got older and we begin to understand more of the history and more of the nuances of, uh, of how the colonial period really worked. Um, I didn't want to get too involved in um, the gray areas and the, and the challenging areas of that time frame. So uh, there's some mysteries associated with the setting. Uh, there are some things about the setting. It's, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of that colonial expansion uh, tension that goes on. Um, most of the problems that you see are things that are internal to the kingdom that exists. Um, and, and they're facing things that are obviously bad, um, as opposed to, uh, some of the more, like I said, nuanced or, or gray areas that, uh, as we are older and more experienced gamers tend to enjoy getting involved with. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. As you get older, sometimes you crave a more adult or sophisticated story that, that totally makes sense. But I think, if you're going to go up against something and, and hack it to pieces, especially for young kids or, or whatever, it's great to know, like, this thing's evil. And right. we're going to kill it as a family. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of, of where I came from with this is, you know, we've seen the adventure paths and as, you know, we, we the, the themes and concepts of gaming as a whole have gotten older as the audience has gotten older. And I wanted to kind of go back to some of the simpler uh, concepts and and really not even shying away from older tropes because if we're bringing new people and 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 kids into the games, although kids today are more sophisticated, I think than than they were when when we were that young, um, they also haven't necessarily been exposed to some of those older tropes and they're fun. And I didn't want to shy away from that in the effort to try and do something so new and different that it was alien to people. So um, I kind of stuck to some of those older classic concepts. Absolutely. So why do you guys think it is an important thing uh, for for families to be able to get together and, and play games? But it's funny. I started thinking about this in particular. Well, let me back up for a second here. I, you know, I played with my older kids who are now 21 and 18. You know, we played a lot when they were kids. My 18-year-old, he's been playing in my regular Friday night group since he was 14, I think. My youngest son is 11, and we've played off and on. Um, usually in the summertime with some of the kids in the neighborhood. Um, it's it's a great activity because it's one where you can get around and you can work on sort of shared problem solving. You can see the consequences of your actions. And sometimes those consequences are good. Sometimes those consequences are bad. You can see working on you know, planning two things together. And also, for that matter, as a, as a former teacher, you can work on math skills. You can work on sort of problem solving and analysis. You can work on reading and just being able to kind of pull things out and put clues together. So they're, they're intellectual challenges that have always been you know, part of the gaming experience that are good brain stretchers for kids and even for you know, adults to really think about a different way of playing a game. What's the first question you get you know, or from someone if you tell them you play in a role-playing game? Besides, is that a computer game? The second <laughs> one is, how do you win? Right, right. <laughs> and being able to retrain that expectation and think here's a way it's more it's more like approaching problems in real life it's not about i have now won this scenario it's what have i done to improve or build upon what I, what we've done here 
what are the different things we have in front of us and how can we get about solving that problem? So I think for me personally, I've had a, a lot of fun playing with my kids. And I think that, that I've known a lot of people who are, who say, look, my kids interested in this, but they don't quite know what it is. Um, and so it's a great thing to have as a tool to ha- be able to get something ready made that people take and use. But also I was walking around the halls at Gen Con last year and I was really surprised as I kind of walked around because I saw a, f- a fair number of, of kids, teenagers and some younger kids, especially on the last day of the con. But I saw almost no products aimed at them besides mm-hmm. some board games and some, you know, toy and T-shirt type products. But all these, you know, game booths, I looked around and thought, man, there is really nothing out here, you know, for, for kids to, to play in a role playing game kind of a way. Now, admittedly, you don't want to want to be involving them in a year-long epic that's going to take them, you know, 400 hours of playtime to get through. That doesn't need to be what it's all about. You're trying to build them towards that. We'd love them to, you know, adopt this hobby that we love as well. But you need to find a good, you know, gateway and entry for them to take it and really begin to start, you know, building that on-ramp to get onto it. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Especially, I had a, a similar feeling when walking around Gen Con. It was kind of like uh, a lot of the games for kids feel like school, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Which which I think that that's a harder sell <laughs> uh, for for little kids certainly. Um, so yeah, this is this is a really 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 cool project. We know that the great Paris Crenshaw is working on this, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, Paris, you are a very accomplished designer yourself. Um, so it's it, you know you're going to get a good product. Uh, who else is working on this thing? Uh, you know, some of the art uh, for this is is absolutely fantastic. Um, so so who else is working on this along with Paris and yourself, Jason? Well, on the uh, on the design side, I've talked to a number of people who work at Paizo, people like uh, Linda Zayas Palmer and Amanda Hammond Coons, who are both interested in it. And uh, they they both are particularly interested in gaming with kids. And at PaizoCon, I should mention, which is in May of each year, um, they have a kids track there with some kid focused you know adventures. And Linda and Amanda are both very interested in, in diving on and helping to build out some of the rules elements, some of the um, you know, design elements, and some of the extra stuff that we have on there. Um, on some of the adventures, uh, Paris working with Mike Wellham, who is the RPG superstar winner a couple of years back, and they're um, working on you know finishing out some of the adventures. Most of it's already written. Adventures one, two, three, and four are already done. That's the um, the Bandits Cave, the Thie- or the King's Curse, the Thieves Den, and the Oracle's Test are all written. Uh, the first three are, are written and developed, and just waiting on maps and art. The um, the Oracle's test is done and writing is being developed. And then the last one is the Wizard's Dungeon that Mike and Paris are both working on. And that one is being written right now. And it should be completed probably before the end of our Kickstarter project. We, It is our hope that all five adventures will be ready to go immediately when the Kickstarter ends. Oh, yeah. Because um, um, look, I, we've run a number of Kickstarter with legendary games and we've always, we've prided ourselves on quick turnaround and some of them have been quicker than others um some have been derailed by forces a little out of our control <laughs> that uh yeah i'll just leave it at that um but others you know we've learned some important and valuable lessons about we are still you know in the process of fulfilling our legendary planet kickstarter i'm um, speaking of things that are a little more out there in terms of concept you know sword and planet and all that but 
that's being done and worked on by a separate team. So this is not something that conflicts with our existing Kickstarter commitments because, you know, the, the team working on Legendary Beginnings and Trail of the Apprentice is kind of self-contained. Um, but we should have, you know, all or almost all of, you know, the adventures done by the time the adventure drops. We're still working on some of the bonus material. Um, so Paris, Mike, Linda, and um, Amanda, also Matt Goodall is uh, interesting. He's going to um, be hopping in towards the end on a couple of other things we're working on here. Um, Artist-wise, a lot of our usual stable of artists, and they're just doing some terrific work here. Daniel Robinette and Beatrice Pelagati um, and Jesus Blones and I forget all of it, but we've got a, a ton of great artists who are working on some, some fabulous stuff and getting a great sense of theme and really mm. conveying that that different kind of, of feeling and a little bit of a unique design aesthetic, which will help this Trail of the Apprentice set itself a little bit apart from the traditional you know, feel of your fantasy game. This isn't you know knights and castles in England and France. It's uh, taking in a lot of those tropes, but giving them just a little couple of degrees shift the other way to give it a, a, a really fun feel all its own. Nice, nice. So let me ask you guys a question because I, I am recently married. Um, and, uh, and thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I'm very, very excited. Very happy. Uh, my wife has never played a role-playing game before. Uh, and she knows that I have a big interest in it. She has agreed to play a role-playing game. So now I'm uh-huh. right, I'm trying to find like the right one so that it, it doesn't turn her off, she doesn't never play again, all that kind of stuff. Um, is this the kind of thing that, you know, if one person in the family has been a role-player their whole life and brings this to the family, other adults in the family can also get involved and have a good time and play? Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely my goal. Um, you know, it, it, going back to, you know, the whole, uh, the purpose behind this. I mean, my goal was that this would become part of a family game night kind of thing. I mean, if, instead of sitting down to a table and playing a board game, the idea was that this is a ready-made product that you can quickly and easily open up and start running. Nice. Um, Jason was, you know, has been very patient with me and and working with a lot of different things that typically publishers don't put up with uh, when you're talking about uh, producing a book. Um, he's let me do things like have full stat blocks in uh, with the encounters, uh, which take up space. You know, totally. word count is word count is king. But uh, but he's but the goal is that the GM, who we expect would be rel- you know maybe relatively new to gaming as well has that as a tool. So it's not a whole bunch of flipping back and forth between pages to find the things that you need. Um, so, you know, but from a, from a, you know, from a, a new player perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my wife, uh, isn't as interested in gaming. Um, she puts up with me. Um, and she, you know, her, her comment is it's not something I'm interested in, but everyone that I've known in my life that has been interested in gaming has been really intelligent. So I'm all for it. <laughs> um, so, um, and, but, but it's not something that, that sparks her interest, but, um, for those who are willing to give it a try, um, I think the trail of the apprentice is a good place to start because, um, it starts off with basic concepts like Jason was saying and brings in and adds more, um, each adventure allows you to go through a full level of experience, um, which is something you don't typically get. Um, with a lot of single modules, instead of having to go through two or three adventures to go up a level, you know, you, uh, you really get that full experience. You start, get to start using those new level abilities as soon as you get them pretty much. 
Um, and so hopefully that kind of allows people to explore their options a little bit more. Paris, we were talking before the podcast, and you said you've actually had this idea since 2009. Um, what, <laughs> what was the idea? You know, what sort of sparked this idea? Why is this so important to you? Well, um, I'm, I'm a father myself. Um, I have twin daughters who are turning 14 here very soon. Oh, good um, luck. Actually, good luck. Actually, they'll turn 14 a day before the pod, uh, before the Kickstarter. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, the idea is that, you know, I started them with gaming. Uh, you know, I started when I was, uh, what, in, in 1984 was my first experience with D&D, the, the blue box. Um, and I played Boot Hill and Top Secret and Star Frontiers yep. and all those games. And, and they kind of sparked my interest. And then AD&D Second Edition came out, and I really got into it at that point. And um, I wanted my kids to be able to have something. Um, and, and as I said before, Paizo and all these companies that are, that are putting things out right now, they're doing awesome work. But they're all aimed at people our age. I wanted something that I could put down and that I would feel comfortable putting down in front of my well, then 10, 11 year old kids without having to necessarily read through and edit it or, 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 or check it for content. I wanted something I could just flop down because honestly, that's how we got into gaming. It wasn't our mm. parents introducing it to us. It was us finding this cool thing and experiencing it for ourselves. So while I'm totally interested in parents bringing their kids in and, and teaching them because that's, that's awesome in and of itself. I also want a parent who isn't necessarily into gaming to be able to hand that book to their kid and know that they're not handing them something that is going to, you know, cause problems later on. And, and, and it came down to, and at PaizoCon in 2009, um, I had this idea in my head and I got a really cool opportunity to sit down with Lisa Stevens and Ryan Dancy and, and talk to them about kids and gaming. And I learned some really cool things about things that TSR had done uh, early on and, and things that they had done um, with studies that had been done about how old kids have to be when they start gaming and what concepts you can introduce and just really got to pick their brain for almost you know, an hour and a half, two hours. It was a, it was an awesome experience. And I took that and then kind of let it simmer for a while and then um, started working on these adventures. And my, as a GM, my design process, unfortunately, I'm one of these people that's, that's really anal. I have to have everything written down. <laughs> and so when, when I start running an adventure, I pretty much write a module for myself as it is. And so um, I had these things and I was working on them and I really liked this idea and I kept going. And uh, I, I uh, there was another publisher who who was interested in, in doing it and then they ran into some problems and we couldn't do it. Um, and so I had these sitting on the shelf, mostly done um, at least halfway through um, the, the the campaign. And um, I came, I came across something called dungeon scouts, um, which my, my daughters are girl scouts um, and uh, Gary Asselford, who is uh, uh, another designer does this thing called dungeon scouts um, which is introducing kids to D and D, uh, Girl Scouts, particularly through D to D and D. Um, and he does a little workshop. And so we had him come in and our troop absolutely loved it. And they were so excited about it. They were like, well, you know, well you run something for us. And so I put something together and ran it as a, as a father daughter game day. We had the dads come in and play with their kids. Um, and that project became into the Fay wield which was the first legendary beginnings adventure from, from legendary games. And that 
uh, it, again, was a situation where I spent all this time writing and had a, a manuscript for a module and, and happened to post about it on Facebook. And Jason saw it and was like, hey, would you be interested in having us publish it? And I said, that sounds awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and that's where Into the Fay Wheel came from. And, um, you know, he was, again, Jason's been really, really awesome and supportive through this whole thing and letting me kind of run with ideas. And so the whole setting and all that kind of stuff was stuff that I'd been fiddling with for a while and just incorporated it in. And, um, uh, once that was done, I said, well, you know, I want to, want to do more of these and I've got these books on the shelf. Let's see if we can use them. And, and so here we are. Nice. Nice. Well, I mean, that is a, a great story and clear that you have some real passion for the product, which means that people are going to get an even better product because of that. Uh, and it's yep. also great. You can tell Jason that you have a, you know, it's clear why you chose to publish this product as well. Um, and both of you being parents, I'm sure doesn't hurt yep. the equation either. So you really do know what people are looking for who want to run games with kids because you're doing that yourselves. Um, so what do, what do people get when they go ahead and, uh, and contribute to this Kickstarter? What are some of the things that they, can look forward to uh, to pledging and uh, and receiving. Well, you know, we, I said, we, we legendary games run a number of Kickstarters in the past, and some of those have had fairly simple goals, and some of them have had more complex goals. Mm -hmm. um, and this one, we're going back to the simple, which is going to be very simply: you can pledge for PDF copies of the books, or you can pledge for a hardback compilation of all of the adventures together plus all the bonus material. There's going to be pre-generated characters. So you can kind of run it right out of the box, as it were. We have a sort of a special, you know, higher pledge package with some fun stuff in there. Um, Rachel Ventura is still working on, you know, pricing out exactly what that's going to be. So that may be something that will reveal and open up a little ways into the, uh, the Kickstarter process where you'd be able to get, you know, the physical products, but also some support things to go with it, you know, map pads, uh, pencils, and those sorts of things, you know, so you'll have, you know, all the physical things you need to run it all coming to get, uh, together all at once. Um, but really, it's very focused very simply. You can buy them electronic copies of the adventures. You can buy a print copy of the adventures. We will have them available after the fact as um, individual PDFs or individual, um, you know, soft cover print on demands. Um, right now, our plan is with the, the hardback compilation. We will probably be just for Kickstarter backers, and I think you will buy it on our website. I'm not sure exactly how many of those copies we'll order, so it'll kind of depend on what the response to Kickstarter is. If it's big, we'll order more. If it's you know smaller, we'll order less. Um, but there will be you know hardback you know compilations available, but people can also buy single adventures if they're so inclined. Nice, I love that. That's great. That's that's perfect. I love going into a Kickstarter, having the straight and uh, or the straightforward options laid out before you. It sounds really nice, um, you know. And I uh, I don't have kids, uh, but like I said, recently married, and perhaps I will <laughs> at some point in the I near don't. future. So uh, so I would love to pick up something like this, um, uh, and I certainly will be pledging my own support for that. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about this project, where can they go? Well, obviously you can go to the Kickstarter page and you'll be posting that up on your website. Um, you can also look at the legendary games website, which is 
www.makeyourgamelegendary.com. So makeyourgamelegendary.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Legendary Games. Um, there's a Legendary Games game store, which is not us. <laughs> We're <laughs> Legendary Games Game Company with the uh, the sword and the little bloodstain logo. So you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, which is, I think, at Legendary Games J. And there also we'll be posting about it on all of the usual kind of message boards, Pizza.com, EN World, RPG.net. Um, so all of those kind of places you'll be able to find information. But probably the best places are either on our own website or on our Facebook page. That's all of the stuff should be mirrored through there. But you'll have the links right there on your own podcast website. And of course, for this project in particular, there will be the Kickstarter page. Uh, Paris mentioned also Into the Fey Wheel, which was the first Legendary Games adventure that we did. That's something people could also pick up right now. It's available you know, all over wherever your Pathfinder products are sold. We are in the process of converting it to f- for 5e. So that'll be available for both um, both systems. But you can pick up the Pathfinder version now. Go on our site, on Paizo, Drive Through RPG, uh, D20, PFSRD, all those kind of places. You can buy it on Amazon.com also. But you can get that for Pathfinder and soon that'll be available for 5th uh, edition as well. Nice. So people don't even need to wait. You could be playing with your kids tonight uh, if mm-hmm. you wanted to pick that up. And then you'll have even more coming your way if you pledge to the Kickstarter, uh, which is yep. pretty awesome and amazing. Guys, is there anything else about this that we should talk about? Um, as far as Kickstarter length, you know, we this will probably not oh, be a sure. full 30-day program. We probably will be ending in the we'll – probably you know, it's, we've just started now. We'll be ending up probably around the last week um, – in April, so it'll be after tax day. Um, <laughs> nice. Enough time for you to get one more paycheck and then <laughs> get a pledge in right at the end if you have to. <laughs> Which is perfect. Or maybe, you know, if you're lucky enough to get a little money back from the federal hey, government, you go. <laughs> this is the perfect way to spend that tax return. So, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and all the more reason people should get over to the Kickstarter and pledge sooner rather than later, uh, since this one is a little shorter than the typical 30 days. So get out there, yep. pledge your pledge your support, show that you care about young people learning about games. Um, yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, this is amazing. And then uh, do you have individual uh Social media, Twitter followings, anything else? Websites you guys want to plug? Uh, Paris, you got one? Uh, I mean, yeah, I've got a, a public page on uh, Facebook. Uh, it's uh, pariscrenshaw.writer uh, is uh, how you can find me there. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I, I need to work on that a little bit more, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so, and Jason, do you have anything that you want to uh- – the legendary games page is pretty much my <laughs> yeah. Pages, I was going to say, um, so but you can also hit me up at just Jason Nelson on uh, on Facebook or on Google Plus or any of those kind of places. That's fine too. Um, we we really appreciate your support for this. We think it's very cool, and you know what? This is also something. A couple of things. Well, number one, these are adventures that you can play as perfectly regular adventures. You don't have to play them with kids. You don't have to play them at the beginning. They'll be fun. They are fun adventures already. I've, I've been reading through them. These are good, flat out good adventures. So you can run them perfectly fine in your regular gaming group. It just so happens they've been designed to also fit well with you know people who are relatively new to the hobby and people, especially for people who are a younger audience. But there's something really very charming and fun and kind of retro cool about you can run these in your regular group and you'd have a great time with them. If you're interested in supporting not just you know your own family or kids that you know, whether it's you know scouts group, youth group, 
church group, you know, clubs at school. You know, this is all stuff that will be, you know, suitable content for those kind of things. Shoot, even if you just make this in a worthwhile cause and you would like to donate, you know, some of these adventures to libraries or groups like that, we're working on setting up something where you can just make a pledge so that somebody else can get a copy. We've had in the past Kickstarter people who have pledged as, you know, like basically a gift pledge for someone else. And if you think this is an important cause that you'd like to help support kids in gaming in places that you know you aren't even there, that's something we have the ability to do as well. Wow, that is really really cool. So, uh, the, all there's there's really no reason to not get out there and support this Kickstarter right now. Uh, if you've got the income to do so, so go ahead. Check it out. Um, you know, everything will be linked over in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. You can view some art for this project there. It's spectacular. Or you can head over to makeyourgamelegendary.com and read all about it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the roundtable today to talk with us about uh, the Legendary Beginnings Trail of the Apprentice Kickstarter. Thanks a lot, Thanks James. Thanks for having us, James. All right. Well, before we go, uh, where can people find you, Rudy Basso? Hey, you could follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso. I also have a podcast on this network, D&D V&G. Please listen. We talk about Dungeons & Dragons video games. Uh, next episode will be about Baldur's Gate 2, Shadows of Alm, which might be the very best one. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Jeff Wynn, where can people find you? Uh, you can listen to the Appendix and Podcast right here on this network, and you can email uh, The Tome Show to get uh, fan mail to me. And Jeff Wickstrom, where can people find you? You can find me online at jeffwick.com when I'm updating it. And if you look for me on Amazon, you can find my series of hilarious books about King Arthur. Arthur dies at the end. <laughs> Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you all so much for coming on the roundtable today. Hopefully you'll be hearing more of Jeff and Jeff, and you will certainly be hearing more of Rudy. He's not allowed to refuse coming on the show. And before we go, there's a final segment we've started doing every week here on the roundtable. We're highlighting a different DMs Guild product each week. This week's highlighted DMs Guild product comes from Robert Evans. It's called the GM's Table Trap Maker's Toolkit. Build and create sweet, sweet death machines to keep players on their toes. It's a pay-what-you-want product, so what are you waiting for? It includes rules for generating random fast traps, random long dramatic traps, and rules for trap-making characters. There's a direct link to the GM's Table Trap Makers Toolkit over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. Thanks to my panelists, Rudy, Jeff, and Jeff, and to my guests, Jason and Paris. All right, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the fifth edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. You've got tons of free resources for your 5e games over there, all kinds of good monsters, optional rules, modules, magic items. Go check it out. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and special thanks to Jeff Kreiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like this show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.